Well, here we still stand, but we're standing in very different places, uh, which is a little bit, um, I don't know, ironic, uh, perhaps appropriate. I think we'll remember this one forever. I am so sorry we're not all together standing or sitting in uh, that same room in San Diego, but I'm uh, honored and privileged to be here with you from afar. And... Um, Yes, I look forward to the day when we'll get to all be together again. The, the, the title of my talk is Freedom and Why We're Afraid of It, which seems like every year uh, at this conference, the, the, the subjects, the topics just end up being so much more appropriate than one even realizes. It feels like the Holy Spirit is there because uh, what a time to be talking about freedom. I mean... We're not even free to be together. We're, I'm not free to travel, really. I'm taping this in Virginia. Who knows where you're watching it? Um, we're not free to have conferences, to convene without consequences. Uh, but that's sort of the, that's really the tip of the iceberg. I think our, our lack of freedom during these last six months, during this year, has really brought home to us just how much we take for granted, at least it has for me, the freedom to uh, go to work uh, or to, and have my kids in school. I, I took that for granted. Uh, but what about, you don't even, the freedom that you used to enjoy with your friends and loved ones and with your neighbors, some of that has, it's now been freighted with these expectations and hidden cues about what people are comfortable with and, and mask wearing and, and, you know, distancing and all of these uh, very almost uh, wavering, you know, uh, standards that you're told different things all the time. It's, it's complicated uh, to talk about freedom in a time where people don't actually feel terribly free. Well, maybe it's a good exercise. I hope it is today. Uh, and there are plenty of other things that are not even pandemic related that we could talk about. I, uh, the Cato Institute uh, put, came out with a survey, a study recently that said 62% of Americans have political opinions that they're afraid to share. Now, you're watching this about a month closer to the election than where I am right now. But that's a lot of people who don't feel free to say what they feel or what they're convicted by. And uh, so there's a, a, a lack of freedom to say nothing of the, now the, the policing. I live in a college town and we've just reopened and we're encouraged here to, to, um, to report um, students, undergraduates who have not been abiding by the codes that we've set in place. And so everyone is policing each other. Uh, there's a, a real aversion to any kind of risk, which doesn't feel like freedom to me. So uh, here we are talking about freedom in a time when our freedom feels constrained. No matter where you are, uh, you have experienced something like that in the last six months. Now, of course, freedom is one of the chief things that uh, Christianity actually has to offer the world. It's not, it's also one of the, the things that no one really seems to be looking to it for. But our religion, our faith is, you know, uh, it, 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 freedom is at the very heart of what we're talking about. When, you know, Ernst Kesemann, the German theologian, wrote that book, Jesus Means Freedom, um, he wasn't just conjuring up, that up out of thin air. 
as we know, our, our, our faith, the Christian faith is, is really viewed more as an engine of control than it is as a vehicle of freedom, a means of oppression rather than liberation. At least that's how it's characterized um, as a set of rules that make its adherents neurotic and fearful and hypocritical. When um, to those of us, or at least the messages I've heard over the years that here we still stand, I mean, it's just bathed in Christian freedom. Um, and, and, and such a countercultural and radical uh, and beautiful and true uh, notion um, and set of ideas that revolve around that word freedom. Robert Capon, the Anglican theologian, once put it this way. He said, if we are ever to enter fully into the glorious liberty of the children of God, we're going to have to spend more time thinking about freedom than we do. The church, by and large, has had a poor record of encouraging freedom. It has spent so much time inculcating in us the fear of making mistakes that it has made us like ill-taught piano students. We play our pieces, but we never really hear them because our main concern is not to make music, but to avoid some flub that will get us in trouble. The church, having put itself in the place of a parent, has been so afraid we will lose sight of the need to do it right that it has made us care more about how we look than about who Jesus is. Now, um, how many times have you heard the story uh, of, a, of a, someone who has come to faith and experienced the joy of salvation and liberation from sin and from, uh, from the, the, the good news of the gospel and only to feel like it's, it's delivered with one hand and then taken away with the other? I can't help but think always of that scene in the comedy Old School where Will Ferrell's character is, in a, is, is, is being invited into a marriage counseling setting and he's told, he, his wife and I are sitting there and they're told by the very sweet um, counselor that uh, this is a, a place where, where, where people are encouraged to be free, to really speak their mind. It's a nest. Think of my office as a nest, a tree of trust and understanding. And then the Will Ferrell's character, Frank, he starts to say what he's really thinking. And of course, it's completely absurd and lewd and unacceptable. Um, and immediately the disgust uh, on his wife's face is shown. And uh, it is, he, he has to stop and say, wait, wait, I thought we were in the trust tree. And uh, so it's, a, it's maybe an off-color uh, comparison, but this is sometimes what it feels like. I, th- I thought... You, you, you told me I was free to confess my sins, and then I actually do, and uh, you say, you, you, you recoil. And is that the experience that you have had of the church? I hope not. I hope not. And I know that many people have experienced the opposite. So what then do we mean when we talk about freedom? What do Christians mean when they talk about freedom? Is it sort of the freedom from constraint, the freedom to do whatever? The sort of contemporary secular view of freedom, like free speech or, or the right to bear arms? Or is it, is it freedom to do particular things which we normally can't? And that's, that's usually the more theological view, the freedom to serve God, freedom to love, freedom not to have to sin and instead do the right thing. Well, I think we can begin to understand what is meant by Christian freedom if we simply start with freedom as uh, Christian freedom as freedom from the self, freedom from the self. And this freedom from self can really be boiled down to one word. 
It's that great word that has been bequeathed to us, imputation, imputed righteousness. This glorious good news of the gospel, that the basis of our relationship with God is outside of us. It's located in Christ. As the Augsburg Confession put it, Christ's merits are given to us so that we might be reckoned righteous by our trust in the merits of Christ when we believe in him as though we had merits of our own. I think of that New Yorker cartoon of the, the, the two people walking along the street and one person seems to be quite upset and he's turning to his friend and he says, I wish my identity weren't so wrapped up in who I am. And this notion of imputed righteousness is, is, is the gift that your, your righteousness, your, your identity, your enoughness is a gift and it's not, it's bought, it is, uh, it is Christ's merits are given to you as though they were your own. That you and I are not loved according to anything we bring to the table. That we are not who we see ourselves to be, who other people see us to be, but we are who God sees us to be. Now, this imputed righteousness, I think it, it could play out in, let's just name three, three ways it, it, it plays out. And first would be the freedom from judgment. Freedom from, which is freedom from comparison, from measurement, which really equates to the freedom from fear. Because so much of our freedom of, our fear of judgment, or our, the, is, is, is judgment is simply that we're going to be judged poorly. We're not afraid that we'll be judged well. We're, judged, we're afraid because we think we're going to be judged poorly. So freedom from judgment, if who you, if you've already been, if Christ has been judged in your place, well then you, my friend, are free. Nothing you can do or be can add or subtract from the identity that you have in Christ. This reconfigures failure and success in such a radical way. It births transparency, honesty, repentance, inspiration, because with nothing at stake, with the judgments already cast, well, you can try new things. You can, you can take risks, which is a, quite a radical word in a, in a time of true risk aversion. The poet W.H. Auden put it beautifully in his poem In Praise of Limestone when he wrote, the blessed will not care what angle they are regarded from, having nothing to hide. Now that is freedom. Freedom from judgment and the fear of judgment. The second element is freedom from obligation. Usually we have to conceive of life as a series of things that we have to do in order to get by, in order to be the person we, to be lovable, to, in order to be, maybe to be judged, but simply to, that, that there are things that you have to do, and if you don't do them, well, then you're lost. But if the gospel tells us that everything that needs to be done has been done, that the blood of Christ is sufficient for you and for me, well, then it means that life is no longer a problem to be figured out, a set of things to get right, and the shoulds that we, that we carry around in our being and in our shoulder muscles, well, they're transformed uh, into to wants. The question always uh, in light of the gospel is not what do I have to do now that I have been forgiven and absolved. Uh, The question is what do I want to do? And of course, you know, you you will do what you you want to do better and more ethically uh, than what you feel you have to do because there's no incentive to cheat. 
Thirdly, though, there's a, a freedom from time, from temporality. Uh, we are, if we are truly, if our ultimate standing is secure in, uh, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, well, then we are, we are, we're free from the wounds of our past, which tend to dictate so much of our actions and the, the attempts to heal or to live out those wounds over and over again. They are no longer binding, as well as the anxiety of our future. I mean, we live in a world that everything is so future-oriented. Even now, when the future is so opaque, and there's so many questions. I mean, most of my peers, I'm, I'm 41, most of my peers are on some ladder, working toward an eventual end that may never come to pass. Um, I mean, I'm, this, this notion of upward mobility and that uh, life is a series of, you know, bigger and bigger bedrooms <laughs> and uh, larger and, and sleeker cars uh, or just new titles or whatever it is, whatever kind of Christians have, we have our own versions of these. Uh, we are free from that. The imputed righteousness of Christ says there's nothing more that you can be in the future that you haven't already received now. We are free from the growth imperative. So Christian freedom is the freedom to be rather than to grow. It's the freedom to fail rather than to succeed. It's the freedom to die and yet live. But, you know, we're not just talking about freedom from constraint because Christian freedom is not independence. That's, a, that's sort of an American idea of freedom, that uh, to be free is to, to not be confined by anything or, or to have no claims upon you. No, that is, that is wishful thinking. There is no such thing as that kind of independence, not only because the persistence of sin in our lives, but because the, the way that Paul, at least in the Bible, conceives of freedom is as the freedom of a servant. That's the word he uses to describe our relationship to God. And, you know, we kind of hate that, but it's true. You know, you're either bound to yourself or you're bound to God. There's no real option of not being bound to something. You know, so, so if you and I think of freedom as being released from a power or a, a leverage. Well, Christian freedom means actually being bound to the right thing rather than the wrong thing. This is why in the, the collect for peace in my tradition, in, in the Episcopal church, we, we pray, O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. Defend us, thy humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries, adversaries through the might of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This freedom uh, is not just freedom from, it's freedom for, it's freedom to, it's freedom for God and God's purposes. This is the, the freedom of freedom from self means that no longer having to prove with every single step and every single breath that you are uh, to be respected or loved or um, you cherished or uh, that you can actually take, you can, un, you are uncurved to use the Augustinian language. And you can, you can see, instead of just looking at your belly button or your phone all day, you can see the goodness that saturates God's world. Because this world is fallen, 
but good. It is gratuitous. It didn't have to be. It didn't have to exist. And to be free as a Christian is to see the beauty in being able to play a board game with your child or being able to take a walk or being able to simply uh, take a breath when everyone is telling you there's no rest for the weary. Why then are we, even we as Christians, so afraid of freedom? Because isn't that what I'm here to speak about today? The British philosopher, uh, he's actually an, an atheist, a very interesting character, John Gray. He once said that to think of humans as freedom-loving, you must be ready to view nearly all of history as a mistake. And what he meant is that he says, when life gets rough, the need for freedom, it's not that we don't crave freedom, but when life gets rough, the need for freedom or the impulse for freedom, which is real, it tends to be eclipsed by other needs. These can simply be needs for security or darker needs to bolster up an identity to an attack or marginalize or even to exterminate other people. These are all classic human responses, but the idea that humans are by nature free is one of the most harmful fictions that's ever been promoted anywhere. And we see this in our, in our preaching in, in the church. I think it was Gerhard Ferde, that's was someone told me that he, he's, he's responsible, the, the Lutheran theologian, for that incredible phrase for the preacher, that if you think uh, people are free in your preaching, you will try to bind them. But if you think they're bound in your preaching, you will try to free them. And the truth is, we are bound. We are afraid of freedom. So a few reasons why we're afraid of freedom, and uh, then uh, we're going to watch something. Well, first of all, we're afraid of freedom because we equate freedom with chaos. You know, the world doesn't feel safe right now. Uh, many people, I've, I've heard it referred to as uh, the great unraveling, that, our, that we're afraid if, if people are given freedom that the entire social fabric will fall apart if we're not constantly trying to manage our affairs and the affairs of other people, well then things will get even worse, even more terrible. The world simply doesn't feel like a safe place to let go. There's too much at stake. And if freedom uh, involves letting go of control, well then I don't want anything of it. So we're afraid of chaos and so we're afraid of freedom. But I think secondly, we're afraid of ourselves. Because we, we know ourselves. I mean, when, when the pandemic first began and the quarantine began, a lot of people had, had more free time than they'd ever had. Everything was canceled. And um, th there, was a, there was a deep increase in, uh, in, in mental distress around the country. And part of it was because people had, could no longer uh, uh, outrun themselves. They had free time to be with themselves. And they, they were trying, the busyness that they were uh, engaged in was a real form of distraction and sort of fleeing oneself because you, don't, you know what you're like. In a sense, this, to be afraid of oneself is simply to be afraid of sin. If, if I know myself, then I, I, I'm afraid of you too because you might be like me and I think that you're probably even worse. That's why we're afraid of freedom. We're afraid that people, sinners like us, will misuse and abuse it. We think that if people are free to do what they want, well, then they'll do the wrong thing. Of course, that's not true. And yet our instinct always grasps for that sort of control. 
In Romans, Paul writes that where there is no law, there is no sin, but we don't believe that. Uh, We don't believe that if you try to control another person, you tend to alienate them. You tend to make the situation worse. But it's true. When you take away the ought, people get better. It's one of these uncanny things. And it's not a formula. But when love enters the picture, instead of more control, when grace instead of law becomes the operating paradigm in a person's life, good things happen rather than bad. You know, Martin Luther, in his treatise on Christian freedom, he's really trying to um, make, people are so freaked out by what he's saying in regards to works righteousness. He's, he's making it so clear that a person is not justified by works of the flesh uh, or works of, of good works, that he, um, he, has, he acknowledges just how um, scary that is for everyone. Freedom is too scary. If you free someone, if you free Christian people from notions of earning and the fear associated with that, well then, what's there to stop them from not coming to church, from doing the things that you want to do? You see, basically we're afraid of freedom because we don't believe the gospel It's like all sin. The nature of it is unbelief. We don't believe that God has real power, that grace actually has an effect on people, or that we're even capable of doing the right thing without uh, being forced to through fear. But thirdly, I think if you're a Christian, or fourthly, and you, uh, you, this freedom for God, I mean, um, It's scary. We don't like it because uh, once you're free, you're in God's hands. And what if God's plans aren't your plans? What if God wants you to be lonely or unsuccessful? I had a friend who went to an undergraduate at Harvard University, and he was there with a bunch of Christians, and he was talking to them, and he said, you know, what would you do if uh, God was calling you to be, not be a professor at Stanford, but to be a uh, adjunct at Tennessee Mountain Bible College? And uh, no one, everyone's, I don't want that much freedom. I don't want God that much in control. I want to hold tight. Now I want to give you um, two examples of, uh, of freedom and how it works and, and, and the resistance that we have to it. And then I'm finished. And the first one is from the 2012 film Flight. Maybe you saw this movie. It's a fantastic film um, directed by Robert Zemeckis, who did uh, Back to the Future, Uh, that uh, bit of uh, cinematic scripture. uh, But it's a very different kind of film. Uh, Denzel Washington stars in it, and he plays Whip Whitaker, an airline pilot who miraculously crash lands his plane after it suffers an in-flight mechanical failure, saving nearly everyone on board. But you see, we find out that Whip is an alcoholic, that his courage in the midst of this crisis had been liquid courage. And so we watch as in the in the aftermath of this, what is considered to be a heroic act, Whip's life becomes a painful illustration of that most common lie we tell ourselves, that we're in control, that there is no battle inside, or if there is one, we are we are winning that we are free. 
And there's a scene where an inebriated uh, whip shouts over and over, I choose to drink. I choose to drink. I choose to drink. To which his, his lady friend replies, oh yeah? Doesn't look like a whole lot of choice going on. And for every scene in which Whip promises sobriety, even when it is in his obvious legal, and romantic, familial interest to do so, there's a companion scene showing his continued spiral toward the bottom, his bondage to sin and addiction. Now later, things coalesce and Whip is before a grand jury at the end of the film. And the investigator, played by Melissa Leo, I think, explains that they found two empty vodka bottles, mini vodka bottles in the plane, that only the crew had access to that alcohol. And she projects an image of the flight attendant who was Whip's girlfriend who was also on the plane. This woman had died saving a young child during the crash. And they ask Whip, point blank, if she was the one who drank the vodka. And that's where our scene begins. Is it your opinion that Katerina Marquez drank on that flight? Could you repeat the question? Is it your opinion that Katerina Marquez drank on that flight? I'm sorry, my what? Your opinion, Captain. Since her toxicology report is the only toxicology report that is admissible in this hearing, and she, in fact, tested positive for alcohol, is it your opinion that Katerina Marquez drank those two bottles of vodka on the plane? I'm sorry, Mr. Whitaker, I couldn't hear you. What did you say? I said, God help me. Yes, well, however, is it your opinion? It's my opinion. Trina did not drink that vodka. Excuse me, Mr. Whitaker? She saved the boy's life. That's... Could you speak louder, Captain Trina Whitaker? Marquez did not drink the vodka. Because I drank the vodka. Oh. Yeah. Objection! Please... Be seated, sir. Sir. I, I drank the vodka you bottles. Said, I object. Please be seated, sir. This is not a courtroom. Well, I object anyway. I drank the vodka bottles on the plane. Captain Whitaker, on the three nights before the accident, October 11th. October 11th, October 12th, and 13th, and 14th, I was intoxicated. I drank all of those days. I drank in excess. On the morning of the accident. I was drunk. I'm drunk now. I'm drunk right now. I miss Block.
because I'm an alcoholic. think that's the end. We think that he's been defeated, and finally uh, he is going to prison. And yet, it's not the end. And while he does go to prison, he's got more to say. The, in fact, the incarceration is used as a device here. This man who has been freed from one bondage just happens to be in prison, all of a sudden, a new man. Let's hear how he closes out the movie. That was it. I was finished. I was done. It was as if I had reached my lifelong limit of lies. I could not tell one more lie. And maybe I'm a sucker. Because if I had told just one more lie, I could have walked away from all that mess, kept my wings, kept my false sense of pride. And more importantly, I could have avoided being locked up in here with all you nice folks for the last 13 months. But I'm here. And I'll be here for at least the next four or five years. And that's fair. I betrayed the public trust. I did. That's how the judge explained it to me. I had betrayed the public trust. The FAA, they took away my pilot's license. And that's fair. My chances of ever flying again are slim to none. And I accept that. I've had a lot of time to think about it, all of it. Been doing some writing. I wrote letters to each of the families that had lost loved ones. And some of them were able to hear my apology. Some of them never will. I also apologize to all the people that tried to help me along the way, but I couldn't or wouldn't listen. People like my wife, you know, my ex-wife. And, uh, my son. And again, like I said, you know, some of them will never forgive me. Some of them will. But at least I'm sober. I thank God for that. I'm grateful for that. And this is going to sound real stupid coming from a man who's locked up in prison. 
But for the first time in my life, I'm free. For the first time in my life, I'm free. He's sitting in prison. He's had everything taken away from him. To use the Lutheran language, the outer man has been constrained. But the inner man, in that moment of faith, he prays. You hear him, he says, God help me. He says, I had reached the end of my lifelong limit of lies. And some tiny little kernel of something moves him to cry out in faith. And he is freed like that. And the inner man is soaring high, even behind closed bars. You know, that's a, that's a beautiful image uh, of the freedom uh, from pretense and struggle, the freedom to acknowledge who you actually are, to confess who you really are, and therefore who God actually is. The God is the one who saves those who are contrite and cry out to him. It's uh, counterintuitive. And while it is, uh, uh, you know, a fictitious film, I I was watching a documentary. I had the the pleasure of interviewing skateboarder Christian Hosoy recently. He was in a big, big deal in the 80s. If you're of my generation, he was kind of a superhero, the coolest man on earth, Uh, world champion skateboarder, and just looked like a rock star in every conceivable way. And the story of Christian Hosoy, if you watch his documentary, if you just talk to him, is the story of a man who had everything but was enslaved to passions, to uh, attention, to affirmation, and most of, most of all, to crystal uh, methamphetamine. And he ends up going to jail, and he's, uh, he, he's caught and uh, trying to traffic some drugs, and he's sentenced to 10 years in prison, I believe. And uh, when he's in there, he... Um, his girlfriend at the time says, you need to turn to God. And so he asks for a Bible and he, he gets a Bible. He doesn't know what's going on, wasn't raised in the church at all. But he cries out to God and a Bible is miraculously given to him. And he starts reading and learning about who God is and his entire, his, you watch as his shackles fall off. And there's a great scene where he's being interviewed behind uh, jail bars and he's laughing. And the guy with the holding the camera says, who laughs in prison? And Christian says, men who are free. And he's gone on to have an amazing ministry uh, to all people in that world and beyond. Uh, And really this idea that one has to be ransomed almost from, from slavery to servanthood, from serving something that is not good to serving something that is, is all over his own life. And it's a kind of freedom that is um, palpable when you talk to the person. And maybe you know someone like this, someone for whom freedom is not just abstract, but they've truly been delivered from an addiction, from a bondage, that uh, God is the only way it makes sense. So I thought I'd conclude with uh, one of the passages uh, in the Bible, one of my favorite ones about freedom and bondage and why we're afraid of it. Uh, etc. And it comes in Acts, and it's, uh, it's, it regards Paul and Silas in prison. This is the passage. It says, One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. 
While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days, but Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in stocks. They are not free. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he was supposed, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. The jailer called for the lights and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and say, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before him. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. So here you have Paul and Silas severely flogged and imprisoned after exercising an unhinged fortune teller with powerful friends, their freedom is taken away. They're put in the innermost cell. And once in jail, banged up and incoherent though, they start praying and singing hymns of praise to God. It's an extremely strange move that suggests that they interpreted their phenomenally bad day as an opportunity, a privilege even, to witness further to the gospel freedom that they had been given. Well, it's a miraculous display of faith and one which captivates their fellow inmates. However, in the midst of their prayers, there's an earthquake which causes the chains to fall away and the doors of the cells to open. They are free at last. But that's when the real miracle happens. That's when the Christian freedom really sets in. You see, it's in the middle of the night and there's no electricity. So when the jailer rushes in and sees the wreckage, he assumes that all of the convicts had escaped. He's afraid of freedom because he knows what he would do, just like you and I. He knows that it's, since this is the Roman Empire, that his life is over. And so he draws his sword and he starts to, he gets ready to kill himself. And at that exact moment, he hears a voice calling to him from within the darkness. And it's Paul saying, do not harm yourself, friend. You do not need to worry. We are all still here. Apparently, the other inmates had followed Paul and Silas's lead when the doors flew open and they'd stayed put. Now that is true freedom. They put their jailer and his welfare 
over themselves, even over the miracle of God, the earthquake itself. They prioritize their enemy, who they call friend, over themselves. That is freedom from self, my friends. And in doing so, they embody values that are the polar opposite of what the jailer assumed they would be. You see, he lives in the same world as you and I, one built on retributive justice and consequences and self-interest like clockwork. Needless to say, this act of grace is utterly surprising and it undoes this man. And in an instant, he makes the leap from despair to wonder, from devoted enemy to devoted friend. He is converted. More than that, he is set free. And yet, lest we just think of Paul and Silas as these miraculous saints who just are so different than us, I highly doubt that they would have stuck around so that the jailer uh, uh, would do what they wanted. Their action was not some conditional strategy resulting in a mental calculation. It was more than likely as spontaneous as the earthquake itself. You see, what turns a self seeking, uh, enslaved heart into a self-sacrificing servant's heart? Well, I don't think there's a formula, but if we take this passage as our guide, then the impetus doesn't come from within. You see, when Paul puts the jailer's well-being above his own, he's taking his cue from his Lord and Savior, from Jesus Christ himself, who was also imprisoned on trumped-up charges, who also loved his enemy at a dear cost to himself. This is not self-generated freedom. It is the liberation of the Holy Spirit, of the gospel. I mean, it, Paul's instinct here is to show his enemy the exact sort of dramatic love that he himself had been shown while an active enemy of God. This is Christian freedom, my friends. And it is not ours to control, but ours to receive. Amen. Well, we are back after that incredible talk with Dave Zoll to ask a few more questions. Dave, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Kelsey. Yeah. Glad to be here. Um, you said in your talk, you will always do what you want to do better than what you have to do because there's no incentive to cheat. Mm. Um, I feel like this is an argument I've actually had with my husband about the relationship between wanting to do something and having to do something. Um, where did the, what is that relationship? Can you, can you have both? Can you feel an obligation to do something and still want to do it? I, I don't think there's any strict division there, but I, I know that um, the things that you are passionate about, the things that you're excited to do um, for their own sake, uh, because you're free to, I think that there's less of a, um, you're going to want to do them better. I, I don't think you're not trying to get through something or you're not trying to just check a box. If, um, if you're really following, if your desire has been changed in some profound way or it's directed at another person in love, there is no, um, you're, you're going to go beyond the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what that's trying to get at rather than some, 
you know, you should never feel, you can only ever feel obligation or passion. Those things intermix right? like everything in life. But I know that the things we do best tend to be the stuff that we're also excited to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I can, I can think back to, um, you know, when I first started in pastoral ministry, I was so, um, so passionate about, you know, being involved in the ministry that it, it was hard for me to imagine there would ever be days where I felt like I had to do this. I'm like, mm. I get to do this. Um, but 13 years in, it turns out there has been some days in which I felt like I had to do it. Like there is some times where there's obligation there. But, uh, and so I, I like what you're saying here about, you know, not, not making such a strict division, but rec- it is true if, you're, if your sort of desires are born out of freedom, then it really does take away that sense of uh, the weight that comes with doing whatever action it is. Mm. It's interesting because one of the things that I, I mentioned Christian Hosoy in that talk, mm. and I got to interview him for the magazine that we, we put out with Mockingbird. And one of the things he, I was asking him, like, what kind of, what do you have to say to pastors and people who are involved in trying to spread the gospel? And he says, well, hopefully do it in a way that you love. Uh, it's like, yeah, yeah. we love skateboarding. And so yeah. people would see that and they'd, they'd get excited about it and they'd yeah. want to skate. And if you're going to church and it's absolute drudgery, you know, or it's, you can, they can see it on your face, you know, yeah. um, there's something about the, the integration of the action and the desire, which I believe is a component of this freedom we're talking about, but it's not, again, it's not super calculated, but um, you, 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 you don't, you want to go to the church where the people that are there seem to actually want to be there. Yeah. 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 (laughs) What's nice. And you can tell the difference when they don't. Oh gosh. Yeah. 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 What's nice about that too, is when you're talking about serving your neighbor, you're the closest people to you are probably going to have shared passions. And so Mm. that's, that's a nice way to think about um, sharing the gospel or just loving your neighbors. You're, it's it's probably going to come somewhat naturally if you're if you're looking at the people closest to you. You'll have shared interests and you hope so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. maybe not always. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I like I like some of my neighbors. Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> I like I love all of you. They're all watching right now. So. <laughs> and by the way, I did see Christian Hasoy. And Tony Hawk battle it out when I was a kid. This is back when half pipe skating was, you know, all the rage. It was everything. And yep. Christian Hasoy won, much to my disappointment at the time, because I was a Tony Praise Hawk. Praise so. the Lord. <laughs> Love it. So, yes. Uh, you said in your talk, uh, in Christ, we are no longer beholden to the measurement or record of time as a means of our justification, which is uh, something I'm not sure most of us uh, think of, but but I probably should. Um, why is it so easy for us to put our hope in the future where we are better versions of ourselves rather than in God's promises for the present? Well, I don't want to actually say that God's promises for the future are unimportant because right. I think that we are, we do believe in the hope of heaven and, mm-hmm. you know, the second coming and eternal life. Um, but what most of the time when we're, we're thinking about life will be good when, yeah. I was talking to someone this morning who's just gotten down to their, the weight that he's a 41-year-old man who's just gotten down to the weight he was in high school. Wow. And I said, well, has, you know, has, has the despair kicked in yet? <laughs> because now that you've gotten to this place that you've always wanted to be, yeah. uh, that, you know, there's nothing left for you to hope for in the future. Or as we know, every time we reach one of those goals, there's always just another rung yeah. on the ladder. So, and yeah. that's the, that's the, um, 
the basically the despair of uh, a life rooted in works righteousness. Yeah. And so I think that uh, when we talk about ladder climbing being a, sort of a spiritual spiritualized image for uh, works righteousness, it's, a ladder is always future oriented. Yeah. I will yeah. be happy when yeah. when I get to the top. Uh, and that just it proves to be uh, what they call it the arrival fallacy. It doesn't yeah. actually you never get there. Yeah. Uh, the same with the past. I think we can we can um, we can retreat to the past in a way that takes us out of the present as well. And is and is also another way to um, maybe we we think we were better or happier then. We were more law fulfilling then. And that's a, a delusion as well. So when I'm trying to talk about imputed righteousness, I think it's something that roots you in the present as you are right now. As if there were no progress, right? As if there was no. Um, what what would it mean if God's like if your justification was for you right now, yeah. not next week, not when your church grows to this size, not when your book sells this amount, not when you get married or your child gets into this school. But what if what if it applied actually right today? Yeah. You know, yeah. with, with your in and out hamburger shirt. shirt. <laughs> I, think. I think that's clearly, I you find your justification. Maybe there's a connection there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, too, that, I mean, God's promises also cover the past and, and the present or, and, and the future. So they are here for you in the present, but they are taking care of that shame you might be carrying from the past or Mm. kind of the hope and self that we sometimes have for the future. Absolutely. I mean, doesn't when we talk about a lack of freedom, mm. how often is the fact that people aren't free to do with something that happened to them? Mm-hmm. That they're oh. still operating out of that pain, out of that woundedness, out of that yeah. fear, out of that sin, out of that travesty, tragedy or something like mm-hmm. that, that um, to say that, you know, that the past has also been dealt with yeah. is a very, that the future it as well, but the past has been dealt with, I think is a immensely liberating thing for, for especially in a culture that is constantly throwing your past back in your face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As uh, you know, uh, I feel for, I work with college students a lot of times and you just think about what if, what if every aspect of my age from 18 to 22 had been captured on film? Like yeah. Oh. Th- yeah. That, that would limit you in the future, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I'd be on this, in this live stream right now. Yeah. Um, but that's a, that's a tough thing to, to act as though, it, what God says is like that those, what happened back then has been, has been dealt with uh, in a way that goes beyond your own ability to even comprehend it, yeah. I think is a, is a beautifully liberating Yeah. Mm-hmm. Promise. Yeah, I've seen too often, uh, you know, ministering in the church, people that it just are enslaved by what they have done in the past, and it, it's so hard for them to believe that when the scriptures say their sin has been thrown as far as the east is from the west on account of Christ, so so difficult, you know, because they. And part of the reason what I found often, not certainly not always, but sometimes, is people have gotten used to that, and it's almost a way of. It's an act of atonement on their part to continue carrying it around. They feel that they have to feel this way in order to show how truly contrite they are, you know. Yeah. Um, and that can, that can be just, uh, of course, you know, hugely stifling to one's right. freedom. Right. Yeah. And to lose connection with your guilt mm-hmm. is somehow to render it meaningless. Yeah. Or, uh, and, and that's, that's, in fact, if you're, you're losing, if you, if, uh, the extent that you're still connected to that guilt could be a sign of unbelief, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that that's going to fuel all sorts of other 
overcompensations and yeah. um, uh, relationships that maybe not be as healthy. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're obviously going to be talking a lot about serving our neighbors throughout this whole weekend, but you talk specifically about the fact that that service comes with not only the opportunity to love our neighbors, but to offer them, which this is, I guess, an act of love, but offer them the freedom that we experience. I love um, the retelling of Acts 16 that you that you gave us. Um, but then you also mentioned that Christian freedom is not ours to control, but ours uh, to receive. So how do we walk the line between wanting and hoping that others experience that freedom while also allowing uh, the Spirit to do um, the work in giving that freedom to people? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, that is, I, I think that you, when you are put in the position where all of a sudden the gospel just pours out of you, because it can't not, um, that hopefully, I would hope that people have had that experience before. Mm-hmm. When there's no other possible answer to um, the hurt and the, um, the depression or anxiety that a person feels and to say, uh, well, let me tell you about why I'm not suicidal today. Um, mm-hmm. and that's not to ignore, you know, physiological circumstantial factors, but right. I would say that, um, yes, I, I think that you, we, we pray that, that there'd be opportunities that, there, but there's also be desire, um, you know, when someone shares the gospel with you and you get the sense they're doing it because they absolutely have to through yeah. gritted teeth, no. it's not convincing. No. I mean, no. And it certainly doesn't feel like the spirit of freedom. Mm-mm. It feels like this person's got a, you know, a, basically a spiritual gun to their head. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you're made to feel like a target that they just have to sort of hit in order to You feel objectified. Yeah, yeah. yeah you feel, Like, yeah. am I another tally on the yeah, belt of yeah. conversion? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you meet, then you're in situations where, you know— um, the gospel is proclaimed with a kind of uh, uncontrived uh, vigor and enthusiasm that flows out of the person's own experience of it or own, uh, you know, personal history. Yeah. And I think that that's very, uh, very compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and it happens. It happens a lot. It's Again, it's not trying to get away in, in, in freedom. I think we can describe it a lot. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do in the, in, that's what I try to do in the talk and give various components and break it down. But ultimately it wouldn't be freedom if I could put it in a box that could, I could deliver to you that you would then be able to untie and apply in the way that you want it to, you know? Yeah. So there is something chaotic about it yeah. that um, the wind, you know, the, the Holy Spirit blowing and people, you know, reacting in, in all sorts of ways that are, sometimes better than, and, and, and much more, much cooler. Yeah. yeah. Than, than what would we think. would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You, you had mentioned and, and alluded to in your talk, the, that, you know, of course the reason that we fear freedom is because we're afraid that sinners like us will misuse and abuse the freedom. And, you know, what will that mean for the social fabric of society? What will that mean for my life? You know, mm-hmm. um, it, I guess it, my question would be, you know, just to, to talk to that anxiety uh, that people have with it because there's, um, and, and is it something, you know, I can hear the response, well, we need some structure. We need, you know, some, mm. or, you know, what are you saying? Anarchy? I mean, you know. what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a little bit more wouldn't be a bad thing. I'm not sure, but it's, uh, I don't think we're in any danger of that. No. Yeah. Well, the, even, even anarchists find a way to make a lot of laws. Yeah. <laughs> if you hang out with some anarchists, you'll feel very oppressed very quickly. <laughs> the, right. um, 
Yeah. You're not wearing the right, you know, piercings right or garb t-shirts. Or, yeah, yeah. Frankly. That's right. Yeah. The uh I I I think that this is not an argument for a lack of any kind of um outer man constraint. Mm-hmm. It's more to say that um freedom but but I also don't want to preach freedom with my hand, you know, with a with both my fingers right, crossed. Right. I think that people tend to act out more when they're under some compunct. They think something's going to be taken away from them. Yes. Or they think that they're they need to prove something, mm-hmm. or their identity's at stake. Yeah. And so I really think that most acting out, um, or you, if you want to apply pressure to someone. Uh, you're going to see more sin rather than less. And I think that that's, it doesn't mean that people don't abuse their freedom. Yeah. Because they do. Mm -hmm. But um, when we respond by then tripling down with the law, well, then you can say, well, that's going to be, that's going to be much worse. Yeah. You're never going to see that person again. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I, again, I'm trying not, I, I, I took care to qualify it by saying there's no formulas here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I do, I do think that, um, yeah, an actual experience of grace and p- people responding with love and receptivity. Mm. I think it was Rod Rosenblatt who tells the story of the, you know, the person who's drowning in the ocean when they, uh, and, 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 or they're dying and they, they're somehow rescued from the bottom of the ocean and they're revived on the, on the deck of the boat. It, their first response, it may be to punch you in the face, <laughs> but that's only because they haven't really realized what's happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. They're still shaking it off. Yes, right. And a lot of us can't handle that shaking off period yeah. because it's too scary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but sometimes the shaking off is important because usually, um, and they also don't usually say, did, what I think it's Rod who said, like, they, they say, do you see that hand? Uh, the way that I grabbed that thing, that was the most incredible <laughs> yeah. grab of a lifeline ever. Yeah. Like no one says that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's why I think that the, the more, more, more grace, more gospel is needed rather than more law. Yeah. Well, and if it, when we go to, when we, as you said, triple down on the law, I mean, it, it, it is our natural intuition. It's our natural go-to as human beings. And yet Paul's very clear, the law inflames the flesh. The law is, I mean, we, you don't have to look far. You can look all over the scriptures and all over the world today. People who are in highly legalistic uh, cultures or, uh, uh, you know, groups always find loopholes. Yeah. <laughs> always. You can always yes. find the loophole. And yeah. uh, so it, just to your point, yeah, as, as much as it's messy maybe at first, give it a little time. Yeah. that's <laughs> And that's such a hard thing for Christians specifically to get. I think the church... That um, quote that you had from Capen is so relevant. Uh, we just struggle with that. We we want we want to control it. We don't want the shaking off period at all. And what you create is self consciousness. Yes. Mm-hmm. And a yeah. piano player who's makes more bad notes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because they can't hear the music. I thought that, that's yeah, a that. classic, uh, wonderful quote. I think. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And it captures something of spontaneity. Anyone who is a person who plays music, they always talk about getting into the zone mm-hmm. where they're almost, something's flowing through them. Mm-hmm. And they're not, it's not calculated. Mm-hmm. And that essentially that they're free, but they're not free to do whatever. They're, they're, they're bound to the music in yeah. a way that is um, a beautiful illustration of, um, it, they're transcendent almost that it's mm. they're, they're, they've, 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 they've reached outside the bounds of themselves and self-consciousness. Yeah. And I think that that's a, a great, uh, yeah. The zone is what people talk about. Yeah, you know? definitely. And that really kind of brings it back to the beginning of your talk. Freedom ultimately is freedom from self. So mm. 
Yep. Awesome. Amen. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we will be back in just a little bit with uh, our first roundtable discussion. Thanks. Thank you.